This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Welcome to Humans of Gaming. I'm your host, Drew Dixon. I'm the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd, and I'm joined as quite by as quite often I am, and sometimes not. I'll just phrase that as awkwardly as possible by Chris Qualley. Hey, I'm Chris. I'm the chief executive nerd um, with Love Thy Nerd and co-host-ish of this podcast with Drew. Yeah, co-host when it when it suits you. When it suits me. Yeah, because you're the executive nerd. So That's right. I'm just a really busy, high-level executive <laughs> and have lots of meetings and things. Demands, like getting your cable installed right. or your uh, internet installed. Internet, yeah. You probably don't have – I'm guessing you don't have cable. No. Do people still have cable these days? Do you? Some some people do. My dad does. I don't. You don't? No, I just bum off his cable. Not really, but kidding. But I'm no, I don't have cable. Uh, so we have a special guest, as we almost always do on this podcast, and that is Toya, uh, Toya Kristen Finley. Did I say your name right? Yes, I you did. Ask you. And also, okay. I have cable, I just... and I want an awkward introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make it awkward. So uh, you do you have say, cable. He, you did say we have a special guest, as we almost always do. And I but wondered if you meant like because we always have a guest. So I wondered if you meant like some of our guests aren't special. No, they're all special, but oh. I just, I had, I had my mind, like, it's possible that one day we won't have a guest and just be us talking about something that could happen. Okay. So well, I was hoping you didn't mean Toya out. wasn't special. No, I think because that could have been awkward. So you have cable. Toya. I do have cable. What do you do? Comcast or what do you do? Uh, I believe it's Xfinity now. Okay. They would same thing, yes, right? Exactly. Changes yeah. like monthly. Yes. Who so does the price. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know Zane. what? I actually do have cable if, if if I think about it now because I have this internet package and they're like, we'll give you basic cable for free with this. I think Comcast does that with everyone. So I technically do have basic cable. Well, uh, this package comes with internet and phone as well as cable. So Yeah. Well, good to know. <laughs> uh, so oh, we got that out of <laughs> I got that important piece of information out there. Uh, Toya, you and I met at Gen Con. Yes. Uh, very briefly. You noticed my smash hat. Yes, you were going down uh, down which... the escalator, and uh, you had your smash hat hanging off of your backpack. And I saw it, and I was like, wait a minute. Is that a... That is a Predator's cap. Is this dude from Nashville or, you know, Nashville-ish area? Uh, so I, I just had to ask because I did not expect to see a smash hat at Gen Con in Indianapolis. Uh, so Toya, tell us like you're from, you obviously we, we established that you're from Nashville. Um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, what have you, what do you do in the games industry? So, um, I, I have to start by saying I am a writer and editor in general. Um, so my skills being a writer, uh, for, I guess, I was a professional writer for maybe 12 years before that uh, because I started getting published when I was a teenager. And um, one day... Yeah. Like what kind of writing as a teenager were you doing that got published? Um, well, it, the funny thing is I started out as a novelist. Like I wrote my first novel when I was 12 
And so I was curious about how to get novels published. I wrote my first one when I was eight, oh, okay. so yeah. I beat you. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I'm just kidding. No, that's amazing, yeah. though, that you wrote a novel at well, 12. Were you always like a... It just always had an interest in writing. Yes. So I'm, I'm highly visual when I think about stories. And so when I was young, I would have these stories in my head, like playing them out like movies for like three years at a time. And then I would get bored with them and move on to something else. And the summer when I was 11 and 12 years old, I finally decided to write one of those stories down. And so it took up like three notebooks to write it all down, but you know, it was basically a novel. Um, And so I, I became interested in how to get a novel published. And I found Writer's Digest and <laughs> Writer's Digest does not have the best information. Let me just put it that way because <laughs> um, it was like, hey, if you are interested in getting published, you really need to publish short stories first so that you can prove that you are publishable. That is not true. However, um, <laughs> I'm you know 14 years old at this point and I start trying to learn how to write short stories And my first short stories were very frustrating for me because I really what I was trying to do was uh, force a bunch of novel content within 10 pages. Um, It took me a while to figure out the structure of the short story. Um, And Mm. I got published, I published my first short story when I was 17, but I would say I really didn't understand the short story form until I was about 21. Um, So I was around public. Yeah, those are, I guess... We don't think about it. If you're not a writer, you don't think about these types of things. Like if you don't write regularly, you're just like, oh, sure. Like a short story is like an easier version right. of a novel, but it's, there really are two separate uh, mediums. You know, if you have a big idea for a story and you try to cram it in, you know, and, and, and you want to build this particular type of world, you're not going to do that in a short story, you know, and that, that kind of thing, I guess. That, I guess that, that's probably part, that was part of your, something like that was part of your Yes, experience, very much so. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I've always played getting specifically to your question. Um, I have always played video games, um, not to give away my age, but my father brought an uh, Atari 2600 into the house when I was five years old. Um, and I've pretty much played video games except for when I went off to college and I was a professional student for eight years and, um, through undergrad and, um, the MA level, I really did not have time to play games. Uh, but when I was getting my doctorate, I got an Xbox and I started playing again. Um, and I was playing Shinwei 2. And as I was playing that game, I realized that game was doing some things that I had ideas for games. I had, I had, I had an idea for a game in my head and I didn't know if it was possible or not. Let me put that in a less confusing way than I just said. Um, and playing Shinwei 2, I realized, oh, hey, the ideas I have aren't so crazy. This is possible. Mm. And then I realized, hey, there must be things called game writers. And at that point in time, (laughs) I actually thought that game writers were game designers. I knew nothing about game development. I thought game writers wrote up how to play the game. Um, And it would be Mm -hmm. years later when I, I would find out that, you know, that's what a game designer does. Um, And the game writer does more of what we consider uh, typical storytelling. Although um, in a lot of ways, storytelling in games is not typical. Um, And so about 10 years ago, uh, I just decided to look up on Google 
if anybody needed a game writer, uh, I don't think you can really duplicate <laughs> this. Um, and as I'm sure you've heard on your podcast, so many people get into the industry in a bunch of different ways. Um, but I found a indie startup on Craigslist. They were looking for writers. So I contacted them. They asked me for a test, which I did. They made me a lore writer. I did not know lore writers existed at that point. Um, I was working <laughs> for them for, for a while when they, what this was, was Academasia, this? The Making of Mages with Black Chicken Studios. Okay. They liked what I was doing and cool. they said, hey, do you want to do some design stuff? And that's when I found out that game design was a thing. Um, and they made me an assistant designer <laughs> and really. Prior to that, you thought they just kind of floated out the other. Well, I didn't know somewhere. they existed period like i i didn't know i i, I mean working <laughs> on my first game i really did not know all of the different disciplines and how they work together um because i was kind of isolated sure. writing lore um but becoming a designer yeah. i was now um looking at the events that the writers were drafting and i was uh designing items and locations and objects and things like that and so really what was happening at this point is that I was doing narrative design work as well. Even at that point, I didn't know narrative design was a thing. Um, and this was, you know, around 2008, 2009. And there were still a lot of arguments within the, the narrative community about narrative design and what that was. Um, because a lot of yeah. narrative types at that point in time were arguing, well, you're just calling game writing narrative design because you don't think people respect it enough. And, you know, you're calling it narrative design because design is a respected thing and game writing isn't. Um, but no, I mm -hmm. very staunchly believe that narrative design and game writing are two different things, even though sometimes some companies call narrative designers game writers, but they're really doing the work of narrative designers. Um, and I really believe that my background as a writer, I was bringing that into my game design and I was making design decisions based upon things like world building and character. Um, and I was thinking about how, you know, players were going to be interacting with certain items. So I was making narrative design decisions at the same time I was doing game design. So my first job, I pretty much did everything that I do in the game industry, um, except for editing. Um, I've added editing in the past year or so, and I'm really trying to push hard for um, the industry to respect the work of like developmental and copy editors a lot more, um, especially when you have story heavy games, um, because all writers yeah. need editors. And I say that as an writer, as an editor and a writer. So yeah. Amen. I'm yeah. an editor and, too. And so. <laughs> you so, yeah, yeah. Not in games. I mean, even but. even if you have a team of writers, um, and writers understand this with copy editing. So you get too close to work that you stop seeing typos. You know what should be there. Oh gosh. You yes. know what should be there. So you start <laughs> yeah. overlooking your grammatical errors and you know transpositions and things like that. Well. Mm -hmm. When you are writing, even in a team, something similar happens. You know what the plot should be. You know how the character should be developed, all of that. But you're too close to it. Even if it's good work, you don't see how you can strengthen it. You don't see how you can improve it. 
you need an outside perspective to come in because you've been listening to the same voices for however long. Um, And that person who is not actually writing the thing um, can come in and give you an outside perspective to show you where you can improve what you've already done. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So uh, w- can you give us some examples of some some things you've done in the games industry that you're... Okay, you're so well, Academasia was that first game. Um, it's become kind of a cult hit. They released their tools for it. And so there's a very small community who actually write their... It's a text-based life sim, basically. Um, and so you have a lot of uh, fans who write their own um, events and their own adventures, uh, their own adventures. Uh, so there's that. Um, another one that people may or may not be familiar with is Fat Chicken, which was done by a studio called Relevant Games, and that was a satirical look at factory farming. Um, so I was a game okay. I was a game writer on that one. I was able to do some experimentation with text. Even though, you know, we basically had dialogue with text boxes, um, it was released on Steam and mobile platforms. Um, and if you think about like a lot of mobile games, you will have a character portrait and a text box either beside them or below them. Um, I was able to do a uh, play around with text a bit uh, to show characterization, like uh, the, the kind of helper character who um, helps you through the story is the HR manager of Fat Chicken and that chicken is the factory farming company. Uh, and her bottom line is uh-huh. making money. So um, every once in a right. while, when it would make sense, I would spell out some of her words with dollar signs for S's and cent signs for C's. Um, and whenever <laughs> she mentioned fat uh-huh. chicken, um, there would be, I can't remember if I put a trademark or a restriction symbol behind that, but you would, she literally had corporate speak in her dialogue. So yeah. I, I had cool. fun with that. Um, and, you know, yeah. I've worked on a lot of games and, you know, stop me if you heard this before, we'll never see the light of day for uh, one reason or another. Um, there was one game I was a narrative designer on. I was really proud of the stuff that we were doing. Um, it was for a very particular demographic. It would have helped a lot of people and you'll never see it, <laughs> sadly. Um, oh. Right now I am working a bit with interactive fiction or um, interactive story games for mobile. Um, so I can't go mm-hmm. too much into that right now, but um, the way that works, I'm, I am copy editing and story editing, like that developmental editing thing I was talking about for one company. So I'm really excited about that because I do see editing as a bit like mentoring. And I don't mean that in a way that I'm so much better as an editor than writers are. But I see the editor's responsibility sure. as walking alongside a writer and really looking at the piece and saying, okay, what is your vision and how do I get you there? Um, how do I help you get to where you are yeah. trying to be um, in this project? Um, and I'm getting to do that um, with one company. And um, cool. I'm... I need, I need that in my life. <laughs> right? right? Also with my writing. Um, I, I, yeah. I would agree with that as well. Um, and... I am working on my own interactive stories. Um, I I worked for one company again that's under NDA. They haven't released it yet. We'll see if it comes out. But basically, I came up with a story scenario 
Um, you know, the person I was working with was pretty much hands off and let me do whatever I wanted to. Um, I'm working with another company right now, and I'm pretty sure this is going to be released because they wanted a holiday story for like Halloween through Christmas. Um, and they asked for three scenarios. They picked one. And, you know, I get a little bit of feedback here and there, but it's pretty much me, again, being able to do whatever I want storytelling wise. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And yeah. th- again, this is heavily text based, but yeah. it's, you know, the interactive stories that you see with like choices and episode um, and chapters where mm-hmm. they borrow heavily from visual novels. Um, but it's like, you know, the the choice based uh, CYOA type of thing. Um, where you have character portraits and, you know, the text boxes. And it, a lot of the art is feels very much like anime or manga. Yeah. So what's uh, what's your hot take on the Telltale stuff? Um, okay. So, and again, uh, this might get me in trouble, so we'll see. Um, I, <laughs> I have a lot of friends who worked at Telltale at one point or another. Um, and I will say this, mm-hmm. I could tell something was happening with them four years ago um, because their games mm. changed. Um, and I remember, I believe, uh, what, so way? that would have been uh, Walking Dead season one versus season two. And I, the two principal okay. leads yeah. left the company at that point. Um, and okay, the writing was different. I'll put it that way. Um, One -hmm. thing that I did not realize, I noticed this, that the puzzles disappeared after like episode three of season one of Walking Dead. And what somebody who's a former employee told me is that the reason they took the puzzles out is because players hated them. And I found that really interesting because one one thing that players would say, even players who really love the Telltale games, is that sometimes they felt too much like playing a movie <laughs> and you know the puzzles mm-hmm. were more you know of, of a game mechanic that right so i, yeah, I found that really interesting so the players and and you know there were a lot well, wide variety of players you know who played all genres of game of games so you know the players who were playing telltale games they might also play first person shooters or mmos or you know rpgs but they really liked the experience of it just being an interactive story. Um, But yes, I did notice a change in the writing. Also, I believe I was at PAX uh, one year when I saw a banner for Game of Thrones. And this was like right after they had put out A Wolf Among Us. And, you know, people really... I actually liked A Wolf Among Us more than The Walking Dead, even though I thought um, The Walking Dead was absolutely spectacular. I liked the aesthetic of A Wolf Among Us more. It had a really cool art style and a lot of people were like, when are we getting a wolf among us too? And, you know, telltale was pretty silent. And then all of a sudden they're doing a game of Thrones. And at that point I'm thinking, are you going a little too fast? Are you trying to put out too many games too quickly? And then all of a sudden they grew to like what, 200 employees. And, um, and it really felt like, okay, you're starting to wear yourselves thin and this is not sustainable. And, you know, um, you know, I had several conversations with friends who um, were there and had left. Um, and so before that, 
bombshell of an article came out about the toxic culture. I knew it was a toxic culture. Um, you know, I had friends who went to work there who said, I know about the culture, but I really, really want to work for Telltale. So I'm not surprised that it collapsed. Um, I'm sad that it collapsed because there were great people who worked there. Um, based on some of the stuff that I do know that I can't get into, they were stifled a bit. Um, so I'm wondering if they were able to do what they really wanted to, you know, what would have happened, but bringing in all of those employees. And the other thing is licenses are expensive. They're really, really expensive. And the only two, (laughs) right. Well, and Game of Thrones was a lot more ambitious than the games that came before them. Like there were a bunch of endings in Game of Thrones, which I was actually super impressed with. Um, and, and then I, the only two titles that really made any money were Walking Dead Season 1 and Minecraft. And everything else tanked, especially Batman. Batman did not make them any money. Batman uh, lost the money. Um, and the other, there were some other things that players were kind of getting tired of. Um, and the other thing, just to get back to they weren't making money, like um, I saw one journalist uh, post this that you would see after like the first episode of a season, uh, players were not getting like the rest of the achievements, which showed that they weren't coming back. Um, And there were some tropey things that started happening, like choose which character lives or dies. And you got to the point where you're like, okay, well, if I just save this character, they're going to die in the next episode. Um, Except, except for walking dead (laughs) season three. And I cannot remember his name. But it was uh, the black guy whom you could kill very early on. But if you didn't, he had a couple of more times that he could die based on what you chose. But he could live all the way to the end. And I thought that was really cool because they actually subverted one of their own tropes. So that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah, done. that was Tell great. On that one thing, at least. I don't know if you remember that. Uh. I don't know if you know what game I'm talking about, <laughs> that particular character. No, I only yeah. played the first season, actually. So I didn't get to didn't get to play any, didn't ever get around to playing the others. It is sad to me, though. Like, I, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, because um, I think they at least like even if they didn't make money, they certainly succeeded in the sense of like creating a. Um, yes, like a resurgence in interest yes. in those types of games, which I think is really cool. And they were doing those types of games at a at a a production value level that I don't think anybody else really was, you know. Um, Except for maybe you might say like Don't Nod or something does that a little bit, but Don't Nod took what Telltale was doing and evolved it a little bit. Yeah, um, Life is Strange. Uh, really ad- added in again some of those like adventure game mechanics mm-hmm. um, uh, and some other cool mechanics like the rewind mechanic I thought was really clever. Also, I have to say this, Life is Strange, that first season I thought ha- has some of the most brilliant narrative design I've ever seen in mm-hmm. a game. Um, Dang it, I need to play you, it. Oh gosh, I've been so waiting the, too long. The main character is a shy... 18 year old young woman named max she's very introverted she's an artist she's a photographer all of the narrative design is based upon her inner world um so like the the font is her handwriting um you know the information about how to play the game is done like 
in like how in her style of sketching. Um, the tabs for the menus are done in her style of sketching. Um, there's a soundtrack that is the type of music that she would listen to. In fact, she's she plays the guitar, you know, if as a hobby. But if you turn the music on in her room, you can pick up the guitar and play along. I mean, there there are things like that. Um, and, and there are more things, but really all of their narrative design choices are based upon who is Max. And when I say narrative design, um, I mean, how is the story and the world reflected in all aspects of the game? Um, from the UI design to the game mechanics, um, to the story itself. So like everything in the game, you can show something about a character or the world or the story. And Life is Strange Season 1 does that. Um, I thought the story was good. This, um, I There are like major twists and turns. And the conceit of the story, I think, is greater than the ultimate question of what is going on. Um, but for narrative design, if you really want to explain to someone what the heck is narrative design, analyze yeah. that game. Yeah, no, I think it's a brilliant game in terms of like, yes. you know, environmental storytelling too. Like, and uh, there's, I just feel like there's one of those games that the world, there, there's nothing wasted in its, right. in, the, in the world that they created for it, uh, which I, I really appreciate in games. I need to go back and finish. I never, I played a bunch of Life is Strange, but I never did finish it. Hey, before we go on, um, we actually have a listener question okay. um, that we wanted to ask, and it's specifically in regards to narrative de- design. So oftentimes we'll um, invite one of our monthly supporters and listeners to come on the podcast with us. And usually they just listen in and then they'll have a, a chance to ask a question. Um, and Madeline wasn't able to join us for the podcast, but she did have a question for you. So this comes from Madeline. Um, she says, with regard to narrative design, at what point is a branching narrative too large or intensive for that type of game? Uh, uh, so, uh, hi, Madeline. Thanks for your question. That's a great question. So um, it's kind of funny that she's asking that because I actually teach um, video game writing one. Um, and I use a video from Heather Albano, who has written for Choice of Games. And uh, she also wrote for Codename Cygnus. If you are familiar with Earplay, they do interactive uh, audio dramas which is basically you choose your own adventure with voice acting sound and you uh, speak to like Siri or Alexa to make your choices. And she, she gives a brilliant talk where she says, you don't want to get into those large branches because they become unwieldy. Um, and she actually suggests that you start at the end. What are your endings? You know, um, and say you have three endings work your way backwards to get to the choices that get you to those three endings. And she actually, I'm, I'm not using her terminology, but you want to have like hub points um, along the way. And so those hub points are going to branch off. So you have two or three choices, right? And you go along those different uh, plot points or story arcs, but you always come back to like the main story to keep things manageable because 
one thing that I think writers want to do and narrative designers want to do when they think about all of the possibilities that they can give players is they try to give players too many possibilities. They try to give players too much variety and you can't juggle all those balls. Um, First of all, for the rest of the team to produce that it's way too much. Like if it's not text-based and you're working with sound designers and animators and artists, the budget is going to be ridiculous. <laughs> um, if you if you already think of you know like Bioware's games or you know Ubisoft's RPGs and the choices you have in those types of games, if you try to give players like six or seven different choices at one branch, the production for that would be immense and very very costly. Um, so I would say, you know, two or three choices at a time, make sure you always bring that branching storyline back to the main story. The other thing that is extremely helpful, um, and some games do this really well and some don't, is that they always reflect back upon player choices with consequences. Um, and that that allows me to bring in another game, another game um, that I think is kind of evolving off of what Telltale did, and that's the Council. And at the moment, I'm really blanking on the studio, so I apologize for that. Um, but I can speak more about what the Council is in a second. But there, here's an example of what I mean by seeding the story with consequences. Um, there's a cardinal, and this takes place in the late 1700s, who is listening at the door. And he's listening to a young woman being browbeaten and physically harassed by another man. And he knows this isn't right. He feels badly for her. He wants to do something, but he's a coward. So the player character comes along. See, he's eavesdropping at the door. And the cardinal asks him, can you go in and help her? Right? So you go in um, for story reasons. You decide to help her or not. So later on, you see the cardinal and he asks you, did you help her or not? Right? That was a choice you made. That is something that you asked him about. Um, That was something that was very important to him. He had a particular motive for getting you involved. He had a particular reason why he did not get involved. But he came back and asked you about it. And so you have to face him and tell him you did or did not. Right? Um, So that's a consequence. Uh, and I think like, I try to do this in the interactive fiction that I'm writing um, to always go back and remind you of a choice that you made. Um, I either remind you of it, you know, internally as the player character is thinking about something or have a consequence. And when I say consequence, a consequence is neutral um, and you can have a positive or a negative outcome that flows from a choice that you made, say like in, you know, with an interactive story, they're told in chapters, something you did in chapter three can either come back to haunt you or benefit you in chapter eight or nine. So like, there's a desire to make a game feel like you've got all of these choices and you can do just about whatever you want to. But I think if you keep reminding a player of what they've done before because, you know, we want player agency and we want players to feel like they're really directing the story and what's happening and what's going on in the player character's life, in the NPC's lives. It's going to feel more that way 
if you keep saying, okay, this is how you're changing the world. Here's what you've done to affect other characters. Here's what you've done. And it's, it's continuing to affect the world and other characters. So I've, uh, I don't know if you, either of you guys have played the uh, Divinity Original Sin games. I'm playing the second one right now. And just as it's so like poignant that you're talking about this stuff, because I was just thinking, you know, in this first area that you're in, in the game, like there's this, uh, this order of like magisters or whatever, and you have lots of different ways you can deal with them. I've chose to just kill them all. And, but now every time I go back to this area, like their dead bodies are just laying everywhere. And so right. I'm just constantly reminded like, oh, yes. you know, a lot of games, like the bodies just go away. They disappear. They dissipate. Yes. But like literally their piles of blood and bodies are just laying around this entire fort. And I'm just reminded of the carnage I wrought in this area. Uh, it's just funny, man. There's another game like that. And I'm blanking on the title. It's the one where it has a... Um, Dishonored. No, no. It, came out, it was an indie that came out several years ago that has a brilliant narrator who basically narrates everything that you do. Oh, Bastion. <sighs> Thank you. Mm. I don't know why I can never remember the <laughs> Dude, name that of Bastion. that just came out on Switch, man. I can't wait to get that. Oh. One of, uh, well, if you're, if you're going to play it, this is kind of spoilery, but anyway, I, I, I will. No, try I've to played see. it before, but okay. I need to play it again. <laughs> well, well, you know, there's like a history between the Ura and um, the kids people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, you're killing all these Ura, Right. And, and like you were saying, their bodies stay there. They don't disappear. And so what happened in the past is happening again. And it's right in front of your face. You're seeing it. And then, of course, you make you have to make a choice. Um, do you kill the person who betrayed you or do you give him? Do you forgive him? Um, and, you know, if you choose to forgive him, you carry him on your back and you're struggling along with him while you're still being attacked. And you have all these dead bodies around you. I mean, it's just yeah. it's, you're literally yes. carrying the weight like it's such oh. a wonderful moment because you're literally carrying this guy who is yeah, like yeah. whatever we already spoiled it. Uh, yes, know, your enemy, like you're loving your enemy in a way uh, there. I mean, which, really, he 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 walked along this journey with you for a long time and then he just literally puts the knife between your shoulder blades. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was that was really brilliant. And again, that was brilliant narrative design. Me, um, you, you're, what you were saying, Chris, made me think of uh, Dishonored. Because, have you either of y'all played Dishonored? I haven't. I have not. So, uh, so like, obviously, it's this stealth-like type game that's sort of inspired by Deus Ex, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, but you can you can play non-violently, uh, which the first time I played through, I did, and I like didn't kill anybody. I was even trying to get like the non-violent achievement, but I accidentally killed somebody and didn't get it. Uh, but, um, so then I played through it again. I was like, well, this time I'll just, I'll just kill everybody. I'll just kill all the, all the guards and everything. Like just, just for a different experience, just to see what would happen. And the way that game works is that all these dead bodies that you leave behind, like make this plague worse that's going on through the city. Like, so there's Mm -hmm. more rats and just like that cause all these problems and make the game harder for you. And it just is really gross and oppressive. And so like, while I'm playing this violent playthrough, I literally stopped probably, you know, an hour or so into, to playing that way. I was like, I don't like this. (laughs) And I I stopped my second playthrough, but it was so like, it was so nice to see the game acknowledge um, in a, like mechanically and narratively, 
at the same time how destructive do that kind of that kind of thing is like like just wanton violence, yeah. how destructive and and um like there was real world like significant consequences for that. So lesson right. is don't be super violent, I guess. No, I'm kidding. Um but but yeah, I think don't. that's just good <laughs> advice, period. Yeah. I was you know? like internally chuckling when you said, Oh, I was trying to unlock the achievement for not killing anyone that I accidentally killed someone. And I just think like outside the context of video games, what a strange thing <laughs> yes. to say. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, what happened was, is I knocked this guy out. Cause of course video games, right. Again, um, yeah. there's mm-hmm. no other space in the world where it's just like cool or maybe even considered super moral to knock people out. But um, in video games, like, Oh, I took the high road. I knocked him out. <laughs> right. uh, but you know, and, and placed his body, somewhere where it slipped off this cliff and it, it was an accident yeah, uh, yeah. again that'll get video you game problems uh so we haven't really talked about about you toya uh we we like to ask our guests you know some personal questions get to know you a little bit where'd you grow up i am a native of nashville tennessee and i am still living here um I've, okay nice where'd you go to school okay so i started at nyu um that's where i did my undergrad I got my MA at Iowa State, and then I got my PhD at Binghamton University. So I ended up back in New York State. I basically made a triangle. So Nashville, you grew up in Nashville. Uh, what was that like for you? Did you like growing up here? <laughs> uh, I found Nashville to be extremely boring growing up. Um, even when I was very little and had never been to a big city, I loved big cities. I loved the idea of New York City. And when I first visited at 12, I absolutely loved it. Um, and I don't know if we're the same age, Drew, but I like to say that when I was growing up, our haute cuisine was Bennigan's. Uh-huh. Um, and I think yeah. you can you can see how our city has grown based upon how we've become kind of a foodie town. And now we have all of these great restaurants. Um, and I remember when I was in college, I would come home for a break and there were parts of the city I did not recognize. Um, And of course, right now there were 100 people moving here a day, 1100 a month. Um, So the the city is changing rapidly. It's a lot more interesting. (laughs) I now like it as opposed to finding it really boring. Um, But I think the other thing that helps is that I don't like staying in one place for too long. And I travel like five or six times a year now. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sedentary. Um, yeah, I get to scratch, scratch that itch without having to live in, in any of those places for too long. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I get to see people because I, I go to a lot of games industry events. I get to see people who I consider very dear friends, um, and spend time with them That's several cool. times. A year. Yeah. I, um, I'm kind of the opposite of that, I guess. Like, so I had been in relatively small towns most of my life. So when I finally got my wife and I finally moved to Nashville, <laughs> I was like, Oh, finally some culture. But of course I moved to, mm-hmm. we moved here five years ago. So well, and Mount um, Juliet is, so is totally changing too. You know? Mount Juliet is getting um, built up yes. pretty yeah, rapidly. We were talking about that earlier before we started recording. Um, but yeah, Mount Juliet is kind of unique in that it feels like a small town, but you're, you know, 30 minutes away from most anything that you would want to do in Nashville. So it's, it's a nice, like for us, I have kids. So it's, you know, that's a nice balance for us that we, we can be in like a, a neighborhood on a yeah. cul-de-sac and that kind of so thing. So I had good, good for them. Oh, sorry. But, ahead. uh, uh oh, no, I was going to say we were, we, we were talking about, uh, how Mount Juliet can be kind of like, it's a little like more country, 
a lot more red, a lot more conservative than than Nashville um, necessarily. And, and Nashville is fairly conservative, probably by comparison to a lot of cities. But um, but anyway, it's funny. And we were talking about how that's changing. But we have this thing. Have you heard of like hip Mount Juliet? Do you know yeah. what that is? Okay. So yes. Yeah, it's like this neighborhood or not neighborhood, but um, city wide like community Facebook page. So there's one for other suburbs and things in Nashville, right. like hip Donaldson and stuff. So. So it's like just where people can get on there and like talk about what's going on in Mount Juliet or like, Hey, ask people like, Hey, does anyone have a recommendation for a mechanic? Um, So anyway, Mm -hmm. there's this constant battle on hit Mount Juliet between the old school Mount Juliet people who've been here for like forever. And then the, the transplants Um, and the old school Mount Juliet people hate like all the growth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I remember when Mount Juliet was super rural yeah. um, because I, I don't know if this cousin was like a third cousin or whatever, um, but I, I, I was like six or seven years old and my paternal grandfather, my father and I went to visit um, a cousin and the cousin was like in his seventies then and he mm-hmm. lived in Mount Juliet. And I remember the ride. And, and of course I'm from Nashville I remember the ride feeling like it took an hour, you know, and there was nothing but, you know, farmland, you know, on either side of the highway. And it just felt like we were out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And, you know, where he lived, his house was out in the middle of nowhere and there weren't a lot of houses on the street. And so to look at Mount Juliet now it's like a completely different world because I remember when it was like, you know, in a cow patch, yep. it's just bizarre. Yep. yep. So it's funny. It's an interesting place in that regard. Cause it's like, you know, we're one of the transplants, like we moved here. So, um, so we kind of, I think I tend to side with, with on that, you know, on that camp, but like our neighborhood is, you know, people from, we have people who moved here from Australia and California and um, New Jersey, and so you know people from all over. So it's 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 pretty it's actually pretty diverse, and the city's like having to sort of deal well, with its identity in that regard, which I think is healthy right. for them to <laughs> deal with. I'm not that they're always dealing with it in a healthy way, but right. yeah. Well, and, and you're going to get more of that because Nashville is getting more expensive. Um, people who are, you know, moving here for jobs are going to be, are, are going to be, and are moving out in the middle Tennessee area. Uh, so yeah, you're getting a lot of transplants from California and, and New York, especially coming here because there are startups moving here. Um, and also the sad thing is you have, you know, there are very few native Nashvilleans left just because the property taxes are rising so much and they can't afford to live here anymore. And so they're moving outward into middle Tennessee um, and having to move like 25, mm-hmm. 30 minutes away yep. from yep. their jobs. Sure. So uh, did you grow up in a church or anything? Did you, were you religious? Yes. Up? So um, uh, first of all, I hate the term religious. Um, I, 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 um, was half United Methodist Methodist and half Catholic growing up. Um, my mother belonged to United Methodist Church. My father was Catholic. So I used to say I was um, United Catholicist. Um, <laughs> and my parents pretty much uh, gave me the choice to decide which denomination I wanted to be a part of. But oddly enough, I started, you know, going through confirmation and I, I don't know how that was a thing. Um, my father probably the confirmation yes, in the Catholic which I, church. I did not finish okay. by the way. Um, but uh, so 
Well, you no, I just stopped. Doing. I just nope, stopped sorry. doing it. Um, that was probably more because of my father. Um, my father and he would tell you this. It took him a while. He was grown, but it took him a while to become an adult. Um, <laughs> let's put it that way. He was a he was a Rolling Stone, even though he never rolled outside of Nashville. Um, he he eventually moved to Florida, and that's where he became an adult. Um, but uh, I what so when my father left for Florida, and he had stopped going to church anyway, and I stopped going to church with him when he stopped going. Um, I went to church for a while um, with my mother, and then my mother started uh, getting interested in more charismatic things, and so I did along with her. And so United Methodism just wasn't interesting enough anymore. And so we went to a couple of larger churches here in Nashville. And (laughs) the longer you are at a church, the more you see the underbelly of things. Let me just put it that way. Um, So eventually, and I have, so to, to get into who I am, I don't know all the Christians, you know, but I'm the weirdest. I'm one of the weirdest Christians, you know. Um, you know, I I <laughs> awesome. believe in dream interpretation. Um, if I told okay. you some of the experiences I've had, you might think I'm mentally ill, <laughs> you know, because of you know things that I have seen and experienced. Um, but yeah. So sorry to interrupt you because I we actually have a guy uh, at our church that is, he wrote a book yeah. about interpreting so dreams. He's actually leading I, a class while we were at, at our church right of now about that stuff. One so of these churches, larger churches that we stopped going to, um, I saw something. Some people would call it a vision. I believe that the Bible says it's a similitude. So it's like when you have your eyes closed and you see something. Um, I would define a vision as you have your eyes open and you see something. Um, so I, 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 I saw something and I did not know how to interpret it. And so some friends who were going to the church at the time um, said, oh, we have this friend who has, you know, been interpreting dreams and visions for years and years and years. So we met with him and he was at this uh, Baptist church. Um, and, you know, I don't think he would call himself Baptist at all. Um, but, you know, he was going to this church and he would have a Bible study Sunday nights. And so um, my mother and I went to the Bible study and um, he interpreted that similitude that I had. And so we start started going to the, the Sunday night Bible study. Eventually, my mother, I was still in school at the time. Eventually, she started attending that church Then I started attending with her. Um, the interesting thing about that church is that when that pastor started getting into more charismatic things, the church split three times. Um, they tried to do like, yeah, the, the members of that church tried to do some pretty <laughs> awful things to him, which I will not go thorough. into detail. Um, but basically, we came to the point where we were like, the, and the remaining members were like, you know what? The Bible doesn't really talk about gigantic mega churches. If you look at who the church was in the New Testament, they were meeting in houses. They were small groups. They met in houses. They all knew everyone else. And so eventually we sold the building. Um, we met in someone's house for a while. She had to sell her house. And so we're now moving in a storefront and they're like maybe 12 or 13 of us. And it's a super interesting group 
because um, I, there's an interracial couple. Um, their son comes occasionally. Their daughter comes. I'm there. My mother's there. So we're the people of color. <laughs> there are like five of us, you know, who are people of color who are black. Um, everybody else is white, um, and you know, everybody else. They're like the boomer generation. Um, and the son and I, I'm, I'm like right between that Gen X Y bridge. I think they've come up with the term zillennial <laughs> yeah. now to describe it. Um, but, and he's just, yes, exactly. Um, he's definitely why. Mm-hmm. And you're you have so weird. We had to make up a word. People who are very conservative. I don't like to identify with, um, a party, but I am definitely more on the liberal side of the spectrum. Um, you know, the couple is more on the liberal side of the spectrum, as is my mother. And we have changed each other. And the the thing that really upsets me about what goes on in, in this country is we are so divided and so polarized that we don't even know how to have discussions with each other anymore when we don't necessarily de- agree with each other's point of view. But if you get to, you know, we, I've known these people for almost 20 years now. um, And we've gotten to know each other, you know, we're to the point now that we care for each other very deeply. So if we're going to have a discussion, that's going to make people very uncomfortable, that might raise a mirror to their faces, we know we're not doing it out of malice. And I've actually said, you know, There are some conversations that I'm going to have to have where I understand that you are willing to be punched in the face because it doesn't matter. The topic itself punches me in the face. Um, And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of like, yes, some of us want to take that step, but we're also, we we have some trepidation about it. Um, And, and quite recently, you know, one of the more conservative members, she's like, well, you know what, why can't we just say, yeah, I'm willing to be punched in the face. We need to have these conversations. You know, it's it's that type of group. And I wish more people in the church, or if I'm going to be a real weirdo, the body of Christ, um, had groups like that, because I think it takes a while before you can trust each other with those types of things. We're a group where, you know, we don't have a sermon, you know, um, our pastor might, and he teaches from his life. He's very transparent. He, he shares things that happen during the week. He'll, um, he's um, a substitute teacher actually in Mount Juliet. And, you know, he'll let us know, I did this really stupid thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, here's what God has been talking to me about it. Um, so that it, and it makes it easier for you to see stupid things that you've done um, that you aren't necessarily proud of and no need to change. Um, but, you know, People have shared, you know, deep hurts in their lives and they're not judged. And, you know, you can say really cockamamie things and nobody's judged. Um, so it's pretty amazing. I'm, I, am, I am definitely able to be myself in, in some ways. And as a person of color who is living in this country right now, I'm finding that I'm able to bring up certain things more than I would have felt comfortable even maybe like three or four years ago. And I've, I've told them that. Um, and I've said, you know, I'm really glad you said that because on certain topics, my long suffering is just about gone, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Cause we had a, we had a pretty interesting discussion one time about the whole kneeling issue. 
Um, and I explained how the kneeling thing started. And it was one white player who had been in the services and said, hey, here's how we honor the fallen. Um, we kneel for them. And that's why Colin Kaepernick started kneeling, because he wasn't kneeling at first. And that kind of blew the minds of you know the white members at my church, because they had never heard that before. <laughs> and and that's when I said, um, and and so you know, a couple of them said, "Hey, I didn't know that." Um, and you know, they asked for forgiveness, and I said, "I'm I'm really glad because you know, there there are certain things that I'm pretty angry about." And yeah, um, you know, my patience, my long suffering is mm. has just about ended yeah. on certain topics, and you know, on any giving thing, my anger could you know burn down the whole building or the whole world, <laughs> and everybody will be left in yeah. a pile of ashes. Um, and I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. So, but it sounds sure. No, and I think that's a pretty common, like, and understandable um, position that a lot of people of color in our country are in today. But you seem to have found like a like a community of people who will listen to you on some of these issues. And like, like you said, your friend who talked about being willing to be punched in the face. Like, how did you get there with this group of people? Like, how, what you know? What do you think the 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 driving force was to, to lead to these productive conversations? Oh, what was the driving force? Okay. So, um, you know, I, I, have used the term charismatic. I do not consider myself a charismatic. I do not like putting labels on my Christianity. Um, I would say that I'm non-denominational because I don't believe in denominations. I believe denominations lead to division. Um, so just the fact that, you know, I believe that, um, the spirit of God does lead and is inspirational. Um, and that's just the way the spirit moved. Um, we sold the building, you know, how many churches do you know would just sell their bill the building and, you know, start having church in a home. Um, and I, I, you know, I believe that we were led to do that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we were a group, the, the ones who are left, you know, were the ones who, you know, believed in dream interpretation and that people can have visions and, and that sort of thing. So we were the wackadoos who stayed basically. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh -huh. and we stayed together. So the, the, and there are several people who are left who went through those very awful splits. And so right. they go back even farther than I do. And I, I, I don't think it is in any exaggeration to say that they went through trauma um, and they went through that trauma together. And so, you know, that, that bonds you to a person, you know, the things yeah. that you go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think it's interesting that I, I mean, obviously like you were talking earlier about how we, like our culture is super divided right now and it's mm -hmm. really difficult to have a conversation like this whole Kavanaugh stuff is probably the example where it just feels like, um, it feels like nobody is, right. um, listening to each other or even like there's zero charitable, right. charitable thinking about anyone right. on, the other, on either side. It kind of feels that way. Not that that's true. Like, I don't think that's true actually, but it just feels that way. Um, so like finding places like you have with your church where you can like punch each other in the face <laughs> and still love each other and, and, and really value like, um, value being corrected by people who have a different perspective than you, I think is pretty rare. So. Yeah, and 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 when he, there's a, a very 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 sweet man, um, 
who one time he's like, you know, I, I don't want to get into these discussions because I'm afraid I'm going to find out uh, like I'm super racist. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, honey, you can you cannot say anything that is as racist as the most racist yeah. thing that I have ever mm-hmm. heard. And that's actually important, right? Like it's important to to have those conversations. And like if you if it's exposed that you are like, that's re- a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, to have that exposed. And it doesn't feel that way. Like, and, and even if you are from a marginalized or oppressed group, you might have certain awful beliefs about other people from marginalized or oppressed groups, or even other individuals in your own group. Um, because if you are in a marginalized or oppressed group, you, you have a tendency to otherize others in your group, especially if you don't believe that they behave and think the way that they should for that particular community. Um, I actually grew up a little bit with that, um, just briefly to go into that. So I went to a private school from, you know, first to 12th grade. I went to church with kids who were more comfortably middle class than I was. But, you know, I was going to a mostly white school. And, you know, so that kind of made me an Oreo. Um, (laughs) Also, you know, when I was a teenager, and I still write speculative fiction, but, you know, I was writing a lot of fantasy then. And this was the age of Terry McMillan. And, you know, black women were starting these book clubs where they were reading um, novels by black women. And a lot of the novels that they were reading were dealing with relationships and black love and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm 15 years old. I don't care about that. Frankly, I still don't care about mm-hmm. that. Um, <laughs> and I remember there was a, a, a woman preacher who was a guest at our church. And, you know, writers don't like to tell anybody they're writers because then you get into these really awkward conversations about being a writer. And even at 15, I knew that. And so I don't remember how she found out that I was a writer. And she's like, oh, so you're writing about black women punch out the black man from doing X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm writing more fantasy and science fiction. She's like, oh, black woman on the moon punching out. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) It's like, um, and so I didn't fit the picture of what a black person or black woman was supposed to be. And I didn't fit that picture for black people in from the point of view of black Mm -hmm. people either. And so like early on in my academic career, I was very interested in that. And, and, you know, like in the, in the late nineties, you had what I called hood genre films. Um, You had uh, fresh, you had juice. um, um, uh, Shoot. Menace to Society, you you had films like that. And um, I remember I was looking at uh, a brochure from a indie company run by um, all black members who wanted to do those types of films. And it stated outright in the brochure that they did not want any middle class experiences because that wasn't really black. (laughs) <laughs> and then <clears throat> next wow. to this wording, there's a picture of the board and they're all in suits <laughs> looking middle class. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so there, there became like this thing where what is authentically black and what is not. And that has been like an age old fight. That was the thing between Richard Wright and Zora Neale Hurston back in the day, because, you know, the Harlem Renaissance 
promoted, you know, someone like Richard Wright, who was looking at like the awfulness of urban life versus Zora Neale Hurston, who was, you know, doing more anthropological work and looking at a more pastoral community. And, and they're saying, no, we're going to promote this urban thing and not your thing, Zora. Um, and I think that minority communities get into this thing where they have to promote a certain narrative to the benefit of everybody in the community or else. And that just feeds back into what the dominant culture believes about you because mm-hmm. the dominant cu- culture already has these stereo- stereotypes. And, you know, we put things out there that support the stereotypes. Uh, I think that's changing, yeah. thankfully, in a lot of ways. Um, and I would say that How there so, are. Do you think? So, you know, uh, a film like Black Panther, a, a show like Lucas Cage, um, The Wiz that came out um, several Christmases ago, it feels like, okay, the the people who collaborated and put those projects together were like, you know what? This story is for Black people. If other people like it, that's nice, but it's okay if they don't. And so you saw more, they were celebrations of what it's like to be Black and the Black experience and how we express ourselves. And it was more of a diasporic experience than just one thing, um, especially with Black Panther. And and I say this as someone who would notice this and maybe you would not, but like even with like the extras in the background as, you know, they're walking through Wakanda, you will see people with very different hairstyles. Like a lot of the extras had natural hairstyles, but there are women in the background who also have their hair straightened. And, you know, like this is a thing with black women now, you know, there's a, it's very political how you wear your hair, whether it's natural or it's straight. And in Wakanda, you have both and it's okay. (laughs) You know? So I'm starting to see expressions like that. Um, the Good Place, which is my favorite show on television right now. Oh, it's such a good show. The most, <laughs> think about this. It is the most diverse show on television. Mm. Three of the main characters are women. Three of the main characters are characters of color. They're not all American. The, the um, supporting characters, very diverse. The extras in the background, very diverse. Um and so, like, it's not where it should be by any means. Just look at what happened to Sleepy Hollow, which was another show that started out groundbreaking and turned out to be the same old, same old, um, because the showrunner decided that he did not want Abby to be the star. He wanted Katrina to be the star. Um, we're starting to see things like that. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful. I need to see more things like that to say, hey, we're getting to where we need to be. Um, but when you bring on more diverse voices, you're going to get shows like The Good Place. You are going to get Black Panther. Um, so uh, let's see what happens. Uh, I would like to see that more in games. Um, I, I think that's more of a trend that you'll see in indies than AAA. Um, but if you have that right. one breakout thing in indie that makes a buttload of money, then AAA will notice because that's yeah, usually what definitely. happens. Yeah, I think we're slowly starting to see it in games. It's still a, a, a industry pretty I, lacking I think, diversity. But, I, I mean, but it's uh, it's changing slowly. Things but have surely. to change for so, women in the industry. You. you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of toxic, toxic, toxic environments in studios for women. Um, yeah. Not to say that there aren't for people of color or queer people 
because that too. But I'm, I'm because the Me Too movement is really shaking up the country. And I think, I, I think we see it here, but I think you'll hear that it's slowly starting to change other cultures too. And they're having conversations, but I'm really waiting for Me Too to rock the game industry. Really yeah, rock it. It's starting to, there's, there's definitely like, there was the whole thing with Riot. It, and, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's happening with Riot, but what is Riot going to do? You know what I'm yeah. saying? What changes are so you can you can have things exposed, yeah. but if you still right. have the yep. systems in place, the yeah. systems of power, the same people in place, and they're not doing anything, what's the point? You know what I'm saying? You know, people yeah. are getting exposed, and they're getting the same the old wounds yep. reopened, yep. and they're they're having to live over the same traumas, and they're having to fight the same old fights, and nothing is changing. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's disheartening and it's mm. exhausting. And I think a yeah. lot of marginalized yeah. people in games feel that yeah. way. Oh yeah, for sure. I think you're, you've, you've, you've defined the current state of things quite accurately from what I can see for sure. I think, uh, yeah, we can hope and pray that, uh, yeah, those changes will come about for sure. But, uh, we're kind of out of time here. We've been talking to you for over an hour now and, uh, <laughs> we don't want to, don't want to take up your whole afternoon but uh we need to talk more because i feel like there's a lot that we could talk about yeah and i never got back to the council which is doing some cool stuff so we'll have you back on we'll talk about uh you know narrative design some more and um i'd love to hear more about uh your views on representation in games and and all those kinds of things oh yeah (laughs) i I have nothing to say about representation (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we talked about it on on I mean, TV I, and movies, and we just barely got into yeah. games. So, uh, yeah, that would be cool. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Well, I am on Twitter uh, at Toya K Finley. That's T O I Y A K F I N L E Y. Um, I have a personal website that's Toya K Finley. I don't do a Toya K Finley dot com. I don't have to do a whole lot there. I have a blog um, that. Every once in a while, and by that I mean like maybe once a year or every six months, <laughs> gets a new post. Um, Sounds like I am most also, blogs I know. Yeah. <laughs> my, my work is at schnoodlemedia.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-D-L-E media.com. And I cannot leave without shamelessly plugging some things. Um, so I co-authored a book uh, in 2015 with Tobias Hosner, Anne LeMay, and Jennifer Brandis Hepler called The Game Narrative Toolbox. It's all about narrative design. Every chapter has a very specific topic like world building or characters or story. Every chapter ends with an exercise. So if you are working on the narrative for your game or you want to build up a portfolio, if you do those exercises, uh, it'll help you accomplish that. Um, just this past month, I also published a book where I was the editor and I also contributed several chapters called Narrative Tactics in Mobile and Social Games, Pocket Size Storytelling. It is the only book mm. that focuses solely on storytelling for mobile and social games. In fact, even if you do like a Google search um, about, you know, techniques for storytelling in mobile and social, you're going to find very little. So I don't mind saying this is a groundbreaking work because dagnabbit <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. so if you know, and uh, mobile and social games are doing some innovative stuff with storytelling. 
so if you have a particular point of view about mobile and social games and you and you don't think the story is all that great, um, yeah, I would great. suggest checking really it out cool. and, and well, uh, seeing and what I and my like contributors have talks, to say. Right? So. And things yeah, like so um, I have a Q&A session every year at the Narrative Summit at GDC that is specifically for uh, newer writers or writers who are looking to get into the industry or people who are going to be working with writers. So we have a panel of veterans. Um, it is a crowdsourced panel. I mean, it, it, you, br you, you bring the questions. Uh, so, you know, it's yeah. different every year. Um, I am mm -hmm. also the person who puts together the narrative tutorial at East Coast Game Conference every year. Um, and, you know, yeah. if, if I get things accepted, I speak at PAX and PAX Dev. So those are the main things that I go to. In the past couple of years, I've been invited to teach workshops. I taught um, a couple of workshops in Singapore a couple of years ago. Um, I'll be going to Ireland yeah. in uh, November, teaching a masterclass um, with another narrative designer. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm I'm starting to travel to other places a bit more, and it, it's, it's a lot of fun. I never thought cool. I'd be doing that. Yeah, that's fun. That's cool. Well, I'm hoping to make it out to GDC mm -hmm. next year as sort of a goal of mine. I haven't been in, I guess, two or three years now. So um, if I make it out there, I'll, I'll, I'll check out your uh, your your Q and A session. That would be fun. Yeah, and so, feel free to ask a question if you get there. Yeah, so. I'll come up with a really good one. I'll try to stump you. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I doubt I'll be able to do that. But uh, but no, thanks so much, Toya, for coming on, on the show. Thank you. Um, I had a lot of can, fun. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Drew Dixon82. Chris is not on Twitter, but you can find him on Facebook. Uh, follow Love Thy Nerd at, on all the socials at Love Thy Nerd. Uh, join our Facebook community. Just search for Love Thy Nerd community on Facebook and you'll find us. Um, there's tons of nerds on there that you can nerd out with about nerdy things and it'll be great. Uh, we have a podcast network. So this humans of gaming is one of three podcasts that we're currently doing. We have uh, free play, which is a general nerd culture podcast, uh, where they dig into all kinds of topics around nerd culture. Um, and it's super entertaining, super fun podcast. Go check that one out. We also have pull list, which is our new comic book podcast. So go, uh, go rate and review all these podcasts that would help us a ton spread the news about Love Thy Nerd, um, come uh, check out our website. We have tons of great articles on there, a lot of good educational pieces to educate yourself about what's good and true and beautiful uh, in the world of games and nerd culture. So um, go check those things out. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Toya. This was great. <laughs>